I actually told uh, some people from the intelligence world in the US, I was at a meeting and I realized that, oh, I got all the free letter agencies standing around and I told them, by the way, go home and check that I am on your watch list, because if I'm not, your method is not working. I should be on a lot of watch lists. Welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Andrew Sandberg. He obtained his PhD in computational neuroscience at Stockholm University. He's out in Cambridge now. His focus of his work in Sweden was on neural network modeling and human memory. Right now he works at the Future of Humanity Institute where he centers on high impact risks, uh, estimating future technology, which is kind of crazy to think about, and long range futures. Anders, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. First thing, of course, I need to correct you. That is, of course, I'm in Oxford, not the other place. Oh, okay, okay, Oxford. Uh, but Oxford. I'm a graduate of Stockholm University, so while I find the Oxford and Cambridge rivalry kind of amusing, I, I'm not <laughs> serious about it. Yeah. Really so, important thing is the future. Mm -hmm. the, recently, you were given a talk, and you, you mentioned Myanmar, and we were just talking about this, and I, I grew up on a farm, uh, I love agriculture, I love the fact that we can feed the world. Like I think every farmer in America feeds a everyone in America plus 150 people somewhere else around the planet, which is fantastic. But uh, what did you what was significant about Myanmar that you were like, you, you started the conversation and like you went on somewhere else, but which is cool. But you, there was something there, I think that you wanted to, to, to talk about. Yeah. So I'm writing a paper which is going to be presented at the Oxford Food and Cooking Symposium, hopefully in just one week about food combination superstitions in Myanmar. And this sounds awfully narrow. And by my standards, this is ridiculously narrow. And the reason is partially we, I want to give a talk at that conference because there is good food and interesting topics. But my co-author's wife had also gotten this poster from Myanmar. Uh, it, it's a poster found in a lot of kitchens saying food combinations that are deadly. Not bad for you in wake sense, but if you eat pigeon and pumpkin, you will die. Goat mm. and buffalo, it will kill you. Uh, jelly and coffee, it will kill you. And at this point, probably you and many listeners will say, wait a minute, I had some of this, maybe not pigeon and pumpkin, but this sounds rather nonsensical. Mm -hmm. And actually, most of the things seems to be totally fine. So why do they believe in these, these combinations, that poster? And how does that link to both how culture works and also how we get our food? It sounds like the... The, the study on monkeys where they started by having bananas on the top of this and stop me if you know this one but there was bananas on the top of a pedestal and then when the monkeys would go to get to it they'd they sprayed the monkey so they wouldn't do it so then when new monkeys came in they would stop the monkey from going up but they cycled out the monkeys that knew about the hose eventually the monkeys were just reinforcing this learned behavior that they didn't know where it came from sounds kind of like that but for humans in terms of food like what's allowed and what's not allowed from something that's probably deep in the past, like food poisoning or like a like a taste aversion that then got became culturally. Got it in one. Uh, I think that is exactly what's going on here. So when we grow up, we see what people eat and don't eat, and uh, we assume that is normal eating. And somebody from another, another culture might say, "Oh, those ones very totally delicious," and we go, "What? You eat those?" Uh, the Turkey is exporting crayfish to Sweden every autumn, and the, the, the Turks uh, find crayfish, that's disgusting, and it's a delicacy in Sweden, and so on and so on. We're repeating our behaviors from others, and even setting up these ideas about why they're reasonable and good behaviors. Now, the interesting thing in Myanmar is not so much that they have various uh, food taboos and superstitions, but that they have so many of them and that they're organized in this kind of table. Because if you go to any country, you will have stories like in Brazil, 
but mangoes and milk are said to be a dangerous combination. And most modern Brazilians like their mango lassies and will say, yeah, that's an old myth spread by slave owners to tell the mango eating slaves that they shouldn't be drinking the expensive milk. I don't believe this is a true explanation either. It probably mm -hmm. just something that emerged, perhaps because somebody saw what happens if you pour mango juice straight into milk, it curdles and looks disgusting. And then you assume this is bad. Milk mm -hmm. and the fruit, generally, a lot of cultures have assumed this is bad. And this is probably because of curdling. In your stomach, of course, it curdles, but you don't get to see that. And then you have your theory about digestion, which is probably why it got complicated in Myanmar, because it's in between China and India. And both of them have these food theories based on the pre-modern ideas about digestion and the nutrients that lead to various combinations having various medicinal or harmful effects. The Myanmar system is totally randomized compared to China and India. It's totally mm. nonsense by either of them. But the idea that combinations matter might be a key thing going on there. While in most Western systems, uh, thinking about food, ingre various ingredients, can you eat dog or horse or pig? Well, that depends on your culture, uh, but it's one ingredient. It's not like dog plus uh, pepper is absolutely a problem, uh, while uh, pepper and dog in itself is not a problem. Is the I'm, I'm curious about the underlying reason why this is fascinating you. And my my internal guess is that since you focus on future technology and these things that come in the in the, the what's coming, your the the curiosity here is like how ideas spread. But I, I might be oh, is that close. Uh, that's close. It started just because it's a peculiar uh, situation. Mm -hmm. Why do these people believe it? But as you said, we are people who copy each other. Mimesis, the imitation of others, is probably a key way we're learning stuff. It's not the only way we learn things. Uh, there are formal ways, like posters on kitchen walls and teachers sternly telling us in school about the nutrient pyramid. But there is also these other patterns that we pick up on and build a culture out of. And some of them are really good. A lot of the implicit rules that surround us are absolutely essential for functioning well with other people or functioning in a world of modern technology. But a lot of them are just superstitious. They have nothing to do with reality. Those monkeys you mentioned earlier on, uh, they remind me a little bit of Skinner's pigeons. So Skinner hmm. is classic behaviorist experts put pigeons into boxes. And if they picked uh, at the right button, they got a food pellet. And some of them uh, got uh, things on particular times as a control group, exactly at noon. And if a pigeon happened to do something else just before noon, like standing on one leg, and then it got a food pellet, it assumed that standing on one leg is something that sometimes gives me a food pellet. So some of the pigeons became superstitious. They started doing mm. all sorts of weird things to get the food, and it had nothing to do with getting the food uh, happened. Now, the important thing for the future is, of course, many of these superstitions are really bad for us. For example, the idea that there is hot food and cold food and the kind of different categories that you need to be careful with, that's very common in many societies. And this doesn't matter very much in many situations, except sometimes you really want to boil water to give to somebody who's got diarrhea or fever. But mm -hmm. uh, the folk idea would be, yeah, he is too hot. He needs some cooling food, like water straight from the river that has not been boiled. So in this case, the old superstition is really bad also for introducing modern healthcare. So understanding this dynamics, how do we end up getting stuck in weird beliefs is something that I think might be quite useful for thinking much further ahead and in much more high takeaways. Mm -hmm. It feels... Um... 
it seems like it's definitely uh, based on the pigeon idea something innate in humans that we uh, innate in animals like there's some like learned behavior just responding to stimuli in the environment uh i i wonder if the fact that we have like a frontal cortex and the ability like if you're if you have a phobia for instance you can like slowly be exposed immersion therapy i think is what it's called and slowly work through that if the like the antidote to superstition is something similar to that where you can like be uh, like exposed slowly to it or or if you we could ever like as a species get past superstition because i think it does seem like something that would just is like phobias or, or habits like something that might be just like inbred in us and then we just have to counteract it when we build systems we are kind of built to develop phobias against certain kinds of things. If you make a list of phobias people have, you will find that phobias against animals are fairly common. You find much fewer phobias against inanimate things. It happens. There are people who actually have phobias against snow, but that's very rare. But phobias against snakes and insects, they're everywhere. And it seems like among higher primates, uh, that seems to be almost a built-in thing. A baby monkey or a baby human is not normally afraid of snakes. Uh, but if they hear a scream from their parent when they see a rubber snake, they will almost instantly develop a phobia and, uh, or at least a bit of a fear for it. If you try this, and this has apparently been done uh, to chimpanzee babies with plastic flowers, nothing happens. We haven't got that built-in receptor for finding flowers mm. scary. You need to have much more nasty experiences around flowers to before you start thinking that they're frightening. Mm. So here we have a built-in system for it. And sometimes it can be overcome. I can recognize that I got a phobia and then either using my willpower and my mental flexibility to do that, that's how I got over my wasp phobia that I used to have. Uh, these days, I generally don't like wasps, but uh, I'm not uh, running away like crazy when I see it. And I could go to a psychologist doing a proper treatment. This doesn't work for other weird beliefs, of course, especially when you have delusions. You're extremely re resistant to any evidence against it. Uh, and sometimes you have these bizarre neurological states, like I think it's Capra's delusion. I'm always mixing it up with the Cotard delusion. So one of them is that you believe that you're dead. And mm. That is kind of a easily disproven in some sense. The doctor typically asks, but you're breathing. And one classic response from one's patient was, yeah, I didn't know dead people did that. <laughs> All right. But the doctor kind of kept on demonstrating that the patient was alive. And, uh, the patient was, of course, just uh, adapting his belief about how being dead was. Mm. The other delusion is that your friends have been replaced by uh, replicas, androids, or uh, ninjas or something. And again, as a delusion, evidence doesn't affect it. These ones are rather extreme, but we have the things that are kind of in between. And of course, our political opponents are all suffering from very bad delusions. But once you start being honest with yourself, realize, hmm, I probably have a whole bunch of these things stuck here. And I wonder which of them I actually would want to get rid of. There's a Oliver Sachs is a great writer on uh, neurological issues. Uh, if anyone's interested in a, a interesting read, uh, I, I think the one I mis my, I mistook my wife for a hat. It's like when you get in that stuff, it kind of it, it shows how um, how fragile the human brain is and how fragile every day is, and it's kind of a marvel that we are able to have eight billion of us running around and and not. I don't want to have you know, but the the I, I think the the one where the, like you're your loved ones have been replaced by aliens or robots. Apparently, the if you listen to their voice, you can hear that they're them. But when you look at them, so it's like different parts of the brain are messed up, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, one theory I read, which I don't know whether we have strong evidence for, is that the visual recognition system for faces 
has lost its connection to the, the emotional system. So normally when you see a loved one, uh, you get that little kick of, oh yes, uh, there she is. But now you don't get that. And then that feels like, okay, we must, something is wrong here. And then you, then you might jump to this weird conclusion. There was one interesting case where it was a lady who presented with the problem that she felt the cutlery in her kitchen drawer had been replaced with identical copies. Hmm. That's a very unusual case. And she obviously must have cared a lot about her cutlery or something. Uh, but again, it was this weird brain error causing it. Now, many of the errors uh, Oliver Sacks brings up in his books are interesting because he's describing perhaps the most vivid cases. Many mm -hmm. cases are much more boring and everyday. Uh, ask any neurologist about their, their working day, and most of them are not too exciting. But quite often they get extremely weird because we're not normally aware of just how weird our brains are. And a lot of our normal function is kind of slightly shoddy. We're making facts up. We're making arguments up. We're making up our visual and auditory field and filling in the details. And most of the time, we're never getting so close to reality that we can see the holes in that. Yeah, the interesting thing about talking to so many different people in so many different fields is sometimes it does feel like there are similar themes that are applied in many different areas. And then it makes me think like one of, I mean, this is a totally different idea, but like uh, Einstein kept working up into his last days, trying to find a universal theory that combined everything that was going on in physics. And sometimes I wonder like, is it me making a pattern that doesn't exist? Or is there a pattern there like the night sky and the, the constellations that, that exist inherently that I'm just able to appreciate, um, which is uh, kind of interesting just the way I guess you wouldn't be able to prove the difference. Well, I think sometimes we can do experiments to mm. uh, notice that. But there is this tricky thing. We are evolved creatures. Mm. Our ancestors developed brains because it was convenient to have a neural bundle close to the sensory organs at the, uh, the front side of the organism. And gradually, it gets more and more elaborate to avoid getting eaten and getting more food and building a little bit of a model of the world. And those organisms that had a too bad model of the world or couldn't learn the right things about the world, they tended to get eaten or didn't have enough grandchildren. So eventually we ended up with big brains uh, that are pretty good at building a model of the world, but a lot of assumptions about the world are already built in. And this is super helpful because as anybody who's been programming neural network knows, if you can put in some useful assumptions to lower the dimensionality of the search space, you can train much more effectively. So when a human baby opens its eyes and sees the world, the visual cortex is already kind of prepared for you getting a two-dimensional map of something. It still doesn't know how to do this in 3D. That is something that the brain is going to learn over the coming months. But those signals are already kind of going into a system that pre-formatted for the assumption that you have two eyes and they are going to then build these higher-order representations of edges, borders, objects, and then gradually that these objects are moving, they're constant, they exist in three-dimensional space, they have a relationship to your body. That is already kind of built in. If a visual nerve attached somewhere else to the cortex, that part of the cortex could also learn it. But it's kind of tricky and we don't know how the neural program is going. But then you have this other situation that but when we start doing astronomy, when we started to think about space and geometry and uh, these things and building our big, nice theories, they are good because you can explain them. I can't explain how to do three-dimensional vision. That's just built into my neural network. 
but I can kind of talk to you about the, the geometry of space. I can start talking about in the Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry, and we can even start looking at the night sky and making a big model there. Now we found a regularity that the babies are not normally finding, and we made it transferable in another way. So now we can have it as a shared understanding. Mm -hmm. The problem is, of course, some shared understanding are totally wrong. Some of them are oversimplified. So if you say that the Earth is flat, that's a good approximation as long as you're not moving too far. Uh, saying the world is spherical is a good approximation as long as you're not trying to do proper geodesy. Saying the world is roughly an ellipsoid is good enough until you want to put up your satellite orbits and suddenly you need to do something even more elaborate. In this case, we even have this meta theory that we have various levels of refinement, but there are probably other domains where we don't even have those meta theories or even those basic theories yet. And then some of them might be impossible to get because there is no good pattern. I was recently reading a book called Project Hail Mary, which is the, the author of The Martian. I don't know if you've uh, read either of those, but the really fantastic books if you're uh, into science solving problems in a, in a fictional sense. But the, in the book, there basically there's like the humans and they find another alien and they kind of act similarly. And they were they wondered at some point why is it that my cognition my ability to think and reason similar to yours like there's like there's differences they're like one's really good at math instinctually but the other ones uh like where humans are you know have their advantages or whatever and the the theory that was postulated is that like the the roof of our cognition was set based on how smart the animals in our environment was and i was recently talking to uh, a shark expert and they talked about how uh great white sharks are are like the smartest in their area because they're an apex predator but they're only smart enough to attack those types of animals i'm wondering if the if our cognition is set because i always wonder about this thing how is it that the, the people that were throwing a stick in the in the field can do euclidean geometry like, i guess they have to do like in, in basic calculations to because that's one of our species traits like we're really good at throwing things and so the, how does that go from from there to building skyscrapers and um and at the same time is it set I wonder, like, where the parameters get set and defined. Like, is there an upper limit that we're that we can evolve to, or that we're set in based on our, our physiology? And uh, in the in the the Project Hail Mary, the idea was the environment and the things that you have to hunt are where your upper brain range is, which was similar to the other species as well. Granted, we've never seen another alien, so we don't know. But I, I liked that idea, or I thought that idea was interesting, and it, it seemed like there might be some merit there, considering like where else would our like we're not we're never gonna be like like evolution is kind of lazy and our brains take up so much energy. So I think if, if we were like too smart, it would probably shave it down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, brains are very energy expensive. So yeah. uh, if you're in a nutrient uh, restricted uh, environment, you're probably going to cut it down. We've seen that, for example, in the evolution of bats, where having light heads and uh, it's more important than being super smart. So they have scaled down a lot of the brains, except of course the hearing and navigation uh, domains. But the interesting thing about the humans is that sometimes I joke that maybe we're the stupidest possible species that can develop a technological civilization. Mm -hmm. Because you could imagine proto-humans evolving higher and higher intelligence up until that point where it suddenly takes off. And mm -hmm. it's no longer a question about getting a better brain, but rather now we work together as a, a team. We can use each other's brains. We can tell each other things. We can share knowledge between many more brains. And that's much better than having a super genius brain in many, many domains. There are exceptions, but uh, when it comes to surviving, uh, well, uh, first of African savannah, teamwork is probably beating being a genius. Mm -hmm. And once you have a good teamwork, you can start doing other things. So 
as soon as you get agriculture, you can start having people who's acting as repositories of information and you develop tools like writing where you can put information in externally in the world, you can really start taking off. I think a lot of this is linked to that we have a really good working memory. We can maintain several things in our heads that are not present at the moment. We can also communicate. Our language is really powerful because we can sit around the campfire and discuss what if we have a hunt tomorrow? So we're bringing up this hypothetical hunt and then we can envision it. We can make plans. We can agree on, well, let's go to the waterhole and you take the other side. And then we can even make this group intention that together we're going to do this. And we can even decide how to divide the spoils. So we are not even going to get into a mayor quarrel afterwards uh, because we already have a plan for that. Now, that sometimes doesn't work, but it works well enough to make us rather fearsome uh, to the other animals of African savannah. And then you can scale it up because thinking about stuff that doesn't exist here, that allows you to think about stuff that doesn't exist in the first place or mm -hmm. abstractions. So I think that is one reason for our success. Another one, like I mentioned earlier, is that we're very good at imitation. Many animals are that, so they imitate each other, but that's also not the most effective way of conveying information because telling people stuff can be very effective. You get abstractions. So we have several tools at our disposal and we're inventing new ones all the time. And part of that is probably because of our over designed frontal lobes. We can change our behavior. If you tell me the right sentence, I might change the way I live my life. It's rare that that happens, but we have certainly all encountered people who have been changed by having a realization or meeting somebody. That doesn't usually happen that much to cats. You can tell a cat almost anything and they're not going to change their behavior very much. Uh, partially because of lack of language, but also there is this behavior of flexibility in humans that is both wonderful. We can adapt to almost anything and horrifying. We adapt to anything and we quite often think, oh, this is normal. This is totally fine. Mm -hmm. the so um, do you think that our way of cognition, looking at other animals on the planet as I guess the only other ways that we have cognition and intelligence as a, as a, you know, a meter to gauge against, is our cognition weird compared to other animals? Because I always talk, I always read these reports of people talking about like, oh, are whales sentient? They have a, they have names for each other. They have all these different things, but do they, do things think in a similar way? Do their brain structures work in a similar way? Because most, most animals that have that I've been reading about because I'm very interested in this because especially if like whales were like somehow sentient and we're like thinking like us and you know we've been hunting them and stuff which is terrible but um do you do you think there's something special in the in the structure and the in the way that we in, in our cognition that sets us apart in and of itself like I, I don't know how to like phrase this this mm -hmm. this question no, but I, like I, I think there is, it's a very good question and the, we don't have a great answer to it yet. I have an mm. opinion, but I think the honest thing is, yeah, the, the researchers disagreed. My view is, yeah, look at the monkey brain, look at the human brain. It's got all the same parts. For, from a low-level perspective, there is no real difference. There is more stuff in the human brain in the frontal lobe region. Uh, yeah, and there are one weird cell type that seems to be unique to higher primates but it's not entirely obvious that it's doing anything magical. It might just be a random uh, electronic component. The real difference seems to be that we have way more of some things that other animals have a bit less of. 
So for example, when it comes to working memory, humans are good at thinking about things that are not present. Mm -hmm. We uh, are good at knowing that I know, that you know, that I know, and games like that. Mm -hmm. um, higher primates like chimpanzees are not bad at it, because if you're a social animal, you totally need to know a little bit about how to cheat and avoid cheating and uh, uh, try to uh, help uh, monkeys that don't know certain things about uh, dangerous pedestals and bananas, etc. So all of this is going on there, but not to the same extent. And it's a little bit perhaps like when you withdraw a control rod from a nuclear reactor. Uh, at a certain point, the amount of energy output goes up quite dramatically because you get each extra unit of working memory allows you to do an, an order of magnitude more uh, complex thinking. Language is also pretty unique because it's so open and open-ended. Again, at this point, people will be bringing in uh, chimpanzees that can do sign language and various parrots. And it's not entirely clear that we got a total monopoly on it. And tool use, same thing. It's just that humans make tools and then we carry them around if it's a good tool. Partially because it's so much easier because we got our hands free because we're walking on two legs. If I were a chimp and I had to carry a tool, it would be really hard on my knuckles. So there are these boring practical reasons too. But generally, I think that most mammalian brains are fairly alike. So when we get to things like sentience, this mm. is kind of disturbing because, yeah, I probably have no reason to think that a mouse is any less sentient than I am. It's probably not thinking very much about it, the state of the world. It's probably rather single-minded, uh, so it might not be wor too worried that it happens to be in, inside a neuroscience lab. I would be rather worried if I realize I'm in a cage in a neuroscience lab. But mm -hmm. the basic sentences might be the same there. And that, of course, leads to all sorts of very interesting issues about the ethics of treating animals and other organisms, but also okay, we've been studying this for a long while and we're not, still not great at understanding even these organs that are related to us. Mm -hmm. the, this gets to a, a similar topic that I, I wanted to ask you, which is um, the, so Carl, Carl Jung thought like that uh, there was a collective unconsciousness of some type that we inherited memory from our past and that kind of touches on like habits and stuff. But even whether, whether it's true or not, it's not necessarily, it's like, I often wonder often our instincts are guiding us towards something and maybe our logic of how we interpret it is wrong, but there's something there to, to think about. And so you're, you're involved in so many different areas. And so I'm, I'm curious where, where the edge of your instincts are telling you that there's something there worth digging. And like, is there, is there an avenue where your gut says like, if I dig there, there's something more, there's something that's really interesting that I don't think people have thought about. I know there's like several topics that just in the conversation before that you like point out that I've never thought about before. So this is like, it's really cool. Uh, someone who's like, I, I don't know to the extent like you, you use your gut or, you know, you think about things to, to find ideas to, to dig into. Yeah. So being an academic, sitting in a philosophy department at Mayor University and trying to write papers, I'm, of course, trying to pretend that I'm this rational mind uh, that is just thinking these sublime thoughts and then writing them down very carefully paper with all the correct scientific ways of checking the validity of everything. And of course, anybody who's been around academics know that, no, no, the, there is all sorts of the normal muddy human thinking going on. And then we refine that into a somewhat presentable paper eventually. And even selecting your research topics, I, I'm literally sitting one floor above the Global Priorities Institute where we're working on questions like, what are the most important things to fix in the world? We're trying to understand that at my institute too we have realized that mm, setting your priorities is super important because typically the most important thing you could be doing 
is probably an order of magnitude more important than the second most important thing. So spending a lot of time getting your priorities in order is quite often worthwhile. Yet, I don't do that that much. And uh, I can, of course, try to come up with some nice excuses. But in practice, I'm a rather disorganized person. I'm solving instead by creative procrastination, jumping between different topics rapidly because I get bored and tired with them quickly. And then I replenish myself by doing something else. And this is, of course, where gut instincts come in handy. In some cases, it's just that I realize I can do something useful here. This is something that budgets when I poke at it. I can see that if I do a little bit of math on this or a little simulation, I can actually answer a question. And then I'm just doing that because it's an opportunity. It's a low-hanging fruit. Sometimes I notice this seems to be a kind of crucial thing. It, regardless of what the answer is, it's going to affect the whole future. I should probably be looking more at it. But often these gut instincts are slightly unreliable about many topics, because when does our intuition work well? Well, in those environments where it's been trained mm -hmm. on a lot of evidence, either because our, all our ancestors had to deal with it, or because we have a lot of experience dealing with people. You, after a while, you actually learn how to recognize uh, somebody who's full of bullshit. Sometimes uh, you, you notice there is something off about this guy. I don't know what it is. But in that case, you should probably trust your gut feeling somewhat. Mm -hmm. You might still want to check if this is the correct one, because sometimes it's instead prejudice, which is a, a, a title we give to gut feelings that we're not proud of and might actually be immoral and bad, that we ought to change. Just like the phobia uh, the, the, the might be a natural thing, so sometimes you actually want to modify them. But typically, intuitions work well when we have a lot of data, a lot of feedback. It's very much like the current neural networks. You have a lot of data to train them and they give their intuitive responses. But you also have a problem in domains that are very different. So if you're trying to do theoretical physics based on your gut feeling, you're going to just end up in total nonsense because theoretical physics doesn't work like that. The constraints that happen in quantum mechanics or cosmology are so far away from anything we normally experience that uh, those gut feelings are not going to be good. Of course, once you talk to a senior astronomer who's been hanging out uh, in astronomy for decades, uh, he or she will probably have a decent gut feeling about what's a good astronomy question. How do I make my telescope do this? Can I get that kind of data? Is this a good project or not? You do develop that even in these weird, abstruse fields. Mathematicians do the same, and they're amazingly good at knowing sometimes when a problem looks fruitful or not. And to us outsiders, that looks like total magic. How can you even know that? You haven't solved the problem, yet you seem to know something about it. But the problem is, of course, gut feelings are just like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're wrong. And uh, usually my gut feeling about gut feelings is that I want to interrogate them a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, is there... So related to, I think, uh, intelligence and gut feeling, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how the... The gut, like people have been talking more about how like the gut biome affects cognition and stuff. And so there's a, a, a bit of your work on emulating the brain. But before talking about emulating the brain, I'm very curious because we keep mentioning machines, your thoughts on um, how intelligent machines are now. I've been reading about LLMs. I'm, I'm reading a book on machine learning. And uh, I think someone made a, there's like a meme saying like, if, if you call machine learning AI, just like a probability statistics, like people get upset. But how, how intelligent is machine intelligence now? 
Yeah, and I think that gets back to that issue about what makes us special and why do mm -hmm. we take over the world from the African savannah. So one way of defining intelligence that comes from Shane Legg, uh, one of the founders of DeepMind, uh, is that it's the ability to solve problems to reach your goals in general environments. Now, the interesting part here is general environments. That is, this is something that works both on the African savanna, maybe in a, po in a polar uh, desert. Uh, it's something that works both in the boardroom and on the street. That, that general ability, that's usually what we call intelligence. Now, there are many things that are specialized that do a much better job in one environment. And they might, as long as that environment is the only thing we care about, we might say that's very intelligent. But generally, we're interested in general intelligence. Now, when it comes to machine intelligence, uh, for a long while, people were not building general intelligent machines very much. People were saying, yeah, narrow AI is actually what we can sell and make money from. So that, let's go for that. And then measuring its intelligence was not even interesting. You're just interested in performance. Uh, how good is it at detecting cats in, the, in pictures? Mm -hmm. But what happened over the last few years is that we found that the large language models can fake intelligence in a way that's so good that it actually approximates real intelligence. And it's leading to this weird situation that, yeah, maybe we're just stochastic parrots. Maybe we're dumb as a pile of rocks, as I said. But we're finding out that actually stochastic parrots or piles of rocks actually can do quite a lot of clever things that we normally would say, yeah, that requires a bit of intelligence and understanding. And you can be critical and say, yeah, but that's just what it looks like because we've been trained on literally billions of people's output. They're very good at faking what humans would do. And we might be using real intelligence and they're just imitating that. But if you imitate it well enough, then that might be still practically useful. If mm -hmm. I want uh, to very quickly uh, grab the stuff uh, and put it together into a paper, let's assume that I don't care about the quality. I can very easily use a language model to make a passable paper. Mm -hmm. That uh, is something that would have been much harder before. And uh, the, the interesting thing is we can even use it to uh, design other tasks. And at some point you say, this is actually looking a bit like intelligent behavior. It's not generally intelligent enough. It has a lot of flaws and unreliabilities, which means it's very, very uh, dangerous to rely on. It's a bit shoddy. But it might be very much like you have your very eccentric friend who is very good at some things and very bad at other things. And he's also totally overconfident that he can do everything. That friend is sometimes somebody you want to bring with you. Sometimes you don't want to at all put him in charge of things, but there are some tasks that you can leave to him. Now, how intelligent is that friend? It's hard to make that overall assessment. You could perhaps get some kind of IQ score. But that's not going to tell you what you actually want to know. And that is, where can I trust him to do a good job? Where can I know that here is just going to pretend that he knows what he's doing? Those contours are more important. And this is, of course, the death of the old Turing test. Alan Turing, mm -hmm. to his credit, never claimed that his test was intended to measure real intelligence. He was making a good philosophical argument that if something can win this test, we must admit that it looks like it's thinking. That's essentially what he's saying. And back in the 1950s, this sounded like an outrageous claim because computers were not at all like that. So the whole idea that something could fake thinking well enough but we couldn't tell it apart was a weird claim. But he was right in his prediction that, yeah, eventually this is going to look totally normal. Now our problem is, yeah, now we're getting stuff that is indistinguishable from a confused person. 
And that might be good enough for quite a lot of jobs because they can be done by confused people. However, nobody really cares about the Turing test anymore because it's kind of uninteresting that you, of course, have these bullshit generators that do a very credible job at talking like a normal person. So, so there was a, I, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, please. No, I was just, um, I was thinking there, there's a person who made um, like a Turing test app type thing where either you were talking to a human or another per person or uh, LLM type thing. You had to guess which one it was and they were trying to see how often people got it right. And uh, apparently, like, you couldn't tell with the modern stuff. Uh, I took the test and I got them, like, 90% right. The, the key for me is I was cheating and I kept asking them what uh, love is like to experience. And, like, <laughs> the, but then, uh, like, 10% of the time, uh, the humans didn't know either. Hmm. Uh, and yeah. I think there are ways of telling us apart so far. But that just changing. It's a little bit like uh, the image generation systems. Last year, people were all joking about them making the wrong number of fingers. But sometime early spring, uh, stable diffusion just stopped making the wrong number of fingers unless it gets confused by other stuff. They just get better. That doesn't mean that it now understands what a hand is. Mm -hmm. It still has this very weird perspective on what the visual world is. And the more advanced language models, Insofar they have an understanding, it's not exactly what we would call an understanding. It seems like they have internal representations of a state of uh, a text, or a, you can describe them running around a labyrinth, and they seem to be actually generating mental maps. But it's still rather rudimentary. It might also be that it doesn't generalize very far. Uh, one possibility might be that this is about as good as it gets, but you don't have much more text data to train them on. And uh, you can't actually do the more advanced forms of thinking because you don't have enough examples in the text. Now, that is one possibility. Another possibility might be that you just keep on scaling this up and you actually do get general intelligence by faking it till you make it. Because that's one of the big problems I have as a former computational neuroscientist with philosophers. Philosophers have this idea that the mind has these beautiful logical relations going on between concepts and I'm aware that, no, it's a lot of squishy neurons sending signals, and they don't always get where they should. Many uh, synapses fail randomly, and uh, it all is working in a very messy way. We have learned a lot of this stuff very randomly, and we shouldn't trust it more than it's robust enough to get through life. Now, robust enough to get through life can still be very, very powerful. We're building skyscrapers mm -hmm. and going to the moon. And I think language models might similarly fake it in such a way that you can make a very useful uh, tool for solving problems. It's just that it's not quite reliable enough for prime time this year, this month, but the rate is so uh, rapid that we should probably expect that in one or two years, the per everybody's going to have a personal assistant AI. Mm -hmm. so, I, I was reading about it and uh, it, it, seemed, it feels... And maybe it's just like the papers I was reading that were like old or whatever, but it might one of the limiting factors in the AI machine learning that exists now is like the working memory that we've been talking about thus far. Because from what I understand, if it's like translating something or it's working on a probabilistic sentence, it only pulls like a, a small segment of that to then guess like what's the probability of the next word being the next word, and the next word. And so it kind of feels like that statement you were saying earlier, where like was something really interesting about the human cognition is our ability to have a lot of stuff in our working memory, where right now the working memory is really small. And I, I imagine that's because they're trying to be really sensitive with compute and the cost of building things. But I wonder what would happen if we really exploded the working memory. If I'm right on this, you know, you, you know, you'll, you'll tell me. <laughs> the, if, if exploding the working memory would would uh, 
would allow them to have less hallucinate. I think that's a lot of times where like hallucinations, all these other things come from. They don't have like the context, the probabilities of, of a larger uh, uh, stream of data to know what, it, what it's actually talking about. Yeah, yeah, you're right about this context window playing mm. a very important role. So in these neural networks, basically we started from the beginning of a text and reading it, and then putting in some kind of representation into the system. And it has a certain window size, but that has been growing tremendously. There is one system, I think this was from Anthropic, but basically could take an entire novel and keep mm. it kind of in the context uh. window. That is downright frightening when you think about it as working mm -hmm. memory. Uh, it's like going from seven things in working memory to seven million things. Whoa. At the same time, the hallucinations, some of them depend on that it lost its context. Uh, I think that was very obvious with the earlier versions of the language models. And of course, the remote ancestors I was playing around with uh, back in the, the 1980s on my home computer, I'd read in Scientific American a very nice uh, the article about the computer generated nonsense that pointed out that you can take a text and then you uh, look at the probabilities of the next word given the previous word, and you can generate that using a Markov chain, and then you get a nonsense text. But if you to take the two previous words, then you get a more sparse matrix, and now the text is going to make more sense. So you can expand that kind of text window, and uh, that generates interesting nonsense text. And these are, in some sense, the remote ancestors of GPT-4 and the others. Now, the cool part here is, of course, what happens when you have a vast context window? Does that preclude hallucinations? No, because we're mm. still generating the most likely part of the text. And unfortunately, that is plausible sounding rather than true. We, we need to kind of train them on truth instead of plausible soundedness. And that is very tricky because we don't have great uh, sources of truth in our world. We have an enormous amount of text and data, but we don't have that good ways of checking it. But of course, a, a, an army of programmers and uh, researchers are working on this question right now because that is what would actually make the AI useful. But otherwise, it's going to make up a plausible sounding explanation of what the scientific field I ask it about is and mention uh, here are a few good papers and books about it. And they're all sounding really plausible, might even have authors that are active in the field, but are made up, mm -hmm. which is tremendously annoying because I would, of course, being a lazy academic, wanted to just list what are the 10 best papers to read about this. And uh, that's probably going to arrive in a few months or uh, within a year or something. But right now, you can't trust them, which means that they're very great for creative writing on the other hand. So I've been having so much fun with uh, ChatGPT, just writing a fiction or coming up with ideas for role-playing games, because here, truth doesn't matter. Consistency is somewhat useful. Style is very important, and uh, suddenly they're really good. And I have friends uh, working in uh, marketing, and they're, of course, uh, saying that this is doing our job for us. Mm -hmm. but the um who is currently who, who do you think is doing the best job at building a truthy system and then uh, underneath that as well do you think a truthy system is most likely to come out of a closed system like a like open ai which is not no longer open or an open source system that has all the weights and all the measures known so that you can even know if it like you can go like all the way down to the turtle shell like the turtle 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 uh to see if it's truthy all the way down so who, who's building the 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 truthy system now in your opinion who's like on the cutting edge of, of achieving it 
given like all the the complexity in the world and then what would be your guess on which uh model of like open source everyone can see validate it and contribute to it versus like a closed system that's you know just has like the, the best minds within a corporation helping it yeah uh the first question, I don't know the answer to. Mm. I don't know who's best at it. Uh, one way of trying to answer it would be to say something like, maybe I should expect the people who are working on actual reinforcement learning and actual robotics to be much closer to truthiness than the people working on language models. And one reason might be that if your robot is getting the feedback from the environment when it's actually doing stuff, that is going to force it to make a world model that actually corresponds well enough to the actual world. While if it's just blabbering on and making a plausible sounding output, the constraints are much weaker. That might be true, but I'm not entirely convinced about it because there is a lot of overlap. There are literal robotics companies uh, that are using language models to generate plans and programs for the robotic arms. So you can imagine that there is going to be language going on inside uh, the robot, uh, which is also a hilariously weird uh, idea on its own. But when it comes to openness versus closeness, I don't think truth has very much to do with that. Uh, mm. Openness is more about, are we getting more experimentation along a lot of unexpected directions versus are we getting uh, effective experimentation maybe with big resources in a few directions? So one of the things I love about the world of AI-generated pictures is that you you have somebody publishing a paper about how to do something, quite often academically or corporate, and within two weeks, the Reddit forum has an implementation that you can run on your own system. And then, of course, people generate scantily clad anime ladies, but uh, that's a second a secondary thing. The interesting thing is, of course, Many researchers would probably say, yeah, scantily clad ladies is not exactly why we're doing this research. But others say, yeah, but I want to use it for that. And architects mm -hmm. are say, hey, I'm totally using this for interior design. Mm -hmm. So you get different interesting takes on what it might be good for. And I think that's very healthy for many technologies. This, on the other hand, makes the risk and safety part of my brain go off kind of, wait a minute, we, aren't we a bit scared about AI around my institute? Isn't this actually something that means that it's very hard to control? And that's also true. There is some technologies that it, I think is a great thing that you have more people playing around with. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the 1980s with uh, my little Sinclair ZX81 home computer, one kilobyte of memory, you connect it to a television set. And then I advanced to the ZX Spectrum with 48 kilobytes of memory and so on and so on. And a lot of my friends uh, were growing up with other small computers. And my generation became very used to playing around with computers and understanding them. And our parents were kind of watching the kids play around with them. So there was an understanding of computing that when in the late 80s and early 90s, as uh, the PCs and the internet became uh, more real, actually allowed it to be integrated in society. And also made many of us rather aware of our risks, possibilities, limitations, and opportunities. Great. Now, the same thing has not yet happened for AI. And that might be very useful, except that if it turns out that you get something, the equivalent of a gun in AI, suddenly you open sourced guns. Suddenly everybody can get a gun if they want to. Now, you're American, so you might have a different perspective on guns than I have as a European. but you can kind of see the problem. There are some technologies that you maybe don't want to democratize too much. And 
there is an interesting question about offense versus defense. When it comes to computers, we have been very bad at doing defenses. Where it's far too easy to hack and destroy and sabotage computers. And given how much depends on that, hmm, that's a bit of an uneasy situation. Yes, having a lot of programs means that some of them are going to be hackers and make uh, computer viruses, but some of them are also going to start antivirus companies and the uh, computer security companies. So it does work out somewhat well for computers. It hasn't collapsed completely yet, uh, but it could be way better. This could, of course, go either way when it comes to AI. And this is part of the ongoing arguments people are having about open source versus closed source. Often it's framed as power. If I can't control the software that is important in my life, that's kind of a scary and dangerous situation. Uh, on the other hand, maybe it's a, also a good thing to keep control over some dangerous software. And we don't have great intuition. So getting back to the earlier conversation about the intuition, we haven't had that much experience. But the relevant experience here might be, can somebody make uh, the equivalent of a shooting spree or a weapon of mass destruction using AI? And so far, we haven't seen that. I think once people do scalable identity theft or uh, something else like that, we might change our tune a fair bit. But then, of course, it might still be too late. There are various bottles and geniuses out of them. And uh, in some cases, we might just have to learn how to live with them. Yeah, the, uh, this this touches on a related topic the, that I think you wrote about uh, biohacking. Uh, uh, is it, do you have to fear a rogue government, uh, angry PhD student, or like biohacker or something? And I think that's the, the was roughly the title of it. But yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, I've, I have wondered for the longest time, why haven't we had a biohacking incident yet? where like something went out there and then I get, I'm, I'm curious, which which is gonna be the greater threat, biohacking or AI? And they all offer different vectors to have a, a problem uh, hit the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm continually surprised, or maybe it's like the government's just really good at like handling them like to the point where we just don't hear about these incident, incidents. But the I feel like AI, your ability to use machine learning, use these open source tools, the, the bar, is lower for you to do damage to the world compared to biohacking. Like you have to kind of understand what you're doing, though you can, to some extent, paint by numbers if you're following something like what Joe Zayner builds at Odin. You probably could just buy the right stuff and for like 500 bucks have something that's bad. But so I get there's like two questions there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting one. And there was recently a paper published by some people at MIT who used a large language model to see if non-scientists could come uh, get advice on how to make a pandemic uh, virus. And uh, it got really shockingly far in one hour. Now, critics would say, yeah, but they still never did anything in a lab. This is just a uh, hype, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been trying to get them to say, so what... At what point would you say that now we have evidence? Would it be that they actually got a vial of DNA ordered from a supplier, that they actually successfully transfected an organism, or they actually unleashed a pandemic? At some point there, you must reasonably say, actually, this helped the risk. Now, the interesting thing is that there are different kinds of tools. The language models are not that great at biology. Uh, I've been asking uh, the language models various chemistry questions. And typically, they tell me, Anders, don't mix those chemicals. It's dangerous, which is totally correct, because I always ask about very, very ill-advised chemistry. But then they usually make a total mess of things. They, they actually do the chemical reactions wrong. They're not good enough at that yet. 
So I'm not super worried that we're going to be doing that, but it's going to help the people who know absolutely the least. But you still need to know a bit to be dangerous. You need to find your way around the lab. I have a suspicion that were I to try this, it would be a total uh, failure because I'm not very good at actually pipetting stuff and following the rules of a lab well enough. I would just probably meet and leave a mess on the lab bench, which is probably the best for everybody involved. <laughs> However, those tacit skills, there are some people who blithely say, yeah, they're, they're really, really hard, and that is not going to spread, so we're totally safe. Biohacking is kind of totally overrated. And I think they are wrong, because people can acquire tacit skills quite well. It's not that hard to learn how to function in a lab. You just need training. You need a bit of effort. You need the right kind of motivation. And you might, of course, get help because you can automate more and more of stuff in the lab. So besides the language models being good at explaining and giving you ideas, you might also have a kind of biology support software and tools that actually perform experiments for you. And that might change the equation of how many people can do. So in that paper I wrote, um, I'm thinking about a kind of risk pipeline from somebody having a bad intention over to understanding how to implement that biologically over to getting a DNA sequence, getting that DNA sequence in a vial, transfecting organisms, multiplying them, testing it out and then unleashing it. All of these steps are hard. You can fail at them in various ways. Uh, Enrico, for example, when they tried uh, their bioattacks, uh, they uh, accidentally heated up the botulinum toxin too much by the release system, I think. And it was mostly ineffective. That's great news. They, they failed at that step and mm -hmm. many, many lives were saved from that. But the tricky part is, of course, that means that the totally incompetent people are not going to get very far along the risk pipeline, while the very competent person is just going to jump through every step very well. But the number of steps also determines how likely it is that you trip on the way. And mm -hmm. if that gets shorter because you can automate it with lab automation or you have a useful lab software that helps you organize it, that increases the risk perhaps more than helping people who don't know what they're doing with uh, some of the steps. So that gets over to the question, why haven't we seen anything yet? And uh, I think the honest answer is, it's a bit like when you're in the morning rush hour traffic why aren't people pushing each other in front of oncoming uh, trains and cars more often? And mm. the answer is, most of us are nice. Most of us would never want to do that to anybody. We can think the thought, especially when it's rainy and it's November and we're really grumpy, but yeah, we're not doing it. It's very rare that people behave like that. And right now, the biohacker world, that's small, tightly knit, and they're probably not the big problem. I'm more worried about the kind of people who would become school shooters. But again, they're not exactly the most intellectual people. They're driven by bitterness, hatred, and a lot of uh, boiling emotions, and they are following various scripts. It's actually one of the weirdest things when you look at terrorism, how scripted it is. Many of the actions people do are just imitating other people before. I, here it is again, that mimesis. Um, it turns out that uh, up until recently, the idea of driving a truck down a pedestrian road was non-existent. Then somebody did it and people started repeating it, which is uh, a horrible thing. But mm -hmm. that potential existed and it took somebody to do it the first time. Similarly, when it comes to suicide bombing, again, they fall, follow almost a script. 
And this is great because uh, that means that terrorists are not as creative as we could be. Over here in the UK, there was a bunch of uh, people at a hospital who got radicalized. They had access to a hospital for heaven's sake. It's kind of a nightmare scenario if you're creative. But what did we do? Crappy car bombs that didn't work very well. One of them uh, was uh, badly parked and got towed away. Uh, one of the, the final ones ended up setting fire to his car and uh, ramming through the glass doors of Glasgow Airport and then got knocked over, uh, over by an, uh, a tourist. Kind of, okay, not very impressive. Very good for society and civilization here. So I'm not too worried about that then. On the other hand, you have uh, a government. If a US government decides, okay, we're totally going to make a doomsday pathogen, and here is the budget allocation for it, of course it could do it really well. Although in practice, very, a lot of this uh, kind of shady projects that the US military and intelligence agencies have done over history, many of them are rather embarrassing when you read what they actually did. Project MKUltra is kind of, okay, it's horribly unethical and bad, but also very bad research. The work on the B-said uh, deliriant gas in the US military, again, if you had anybody with a bit of project management skills, that would have led to way more, but now it was somebody's hobby project. So it can go rather badly wrong, but occasionally you get uh, somebody like uh, Oppenheimer and General Groves, and you get the Manhattan Project, and you get exactly what you want. And at this point, of course, you have competent people, big resources, and barbed wires keeping everybody out. And, uh, it's going to be legal because it's the government doing it. Mm -hmm. But there are a few governments, and most of them are not that mad, and most of them don't have much use of a doomsday pathogen. The problem is there are a few that actually would. You can think of North Korea. Uh, if you're leading North Korea and you're not entirely certain your nukes are up to the task, you might also want some of your research to make a few doomsday pathogens just in case. And maybe you're a smaller nation and realize, oh, I haven't got those wonderful resources North Korea got. Uh, we can't get those nuclear stuff. Oh, let's work on uh, horrible bio stuff. And again, quite often this fails. One of the most common ways it's failing out for Terran regimes is that you have your yes people around you. So you give an order and they say, yes, sir, yes, sir, immediately, we'll start working. And then they take all your money and build a shiny lab and then point at the test tube with something in and it's anything. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to work for them to have a good career and they feel like uh, this is great. The problem is, of course, occasionally they might actually be doing the thing. Mm -hmm. And that is probably going to be easier in the future. And that suggests that we might want ways of controlling this, but we don't want to lose the freedom to do stuff in the lab. In Germany, uh, it's even in the constitution that there is a freedom to do research. I think that's very nice, except that mm, we might want to have a way of preventing freedom uh, from research to turn into freedom of making doomsday weapons. Mm -hmm. Generally, we want to have ways of making that less likely, especially accidental doomsday weapons. There are fewer really malicious people than there are annoyingly stupid people who don't realize that this project is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. the, around where I'm at, the, there's a lot of, I think they're like making meth or something, and the the police are able to know, oh, there's someone in this region that's making meth because they're, they're buying all the supplies. So maybe that's another controlling factor is you need pretty specialized equipment to build these things, like all those different steps you talked about just in, in the knowledge, but also the equipment. So... Um, 
It's, I, I imagine you're on a registry with all the, the things you've Googled. <laughs> uh, I, I actually told uh, some people from the intelligence world in mm. the US. I was at a meeting and I realized that, oh, I got all the free letter agencies standing around. And I told them, by the way, go home and check that I am on your watch list. Because if I'm not, your method is not working. I should be on a lot of watch lists because I'm Don't interested in a lot of weird, weird <laughs> stuff. Um, anybody searching and downloading neutron diffusion code should be kind of go, going up a few notches. But the problem here is, of course, yeah, I can, I also know how to do this in secret. I, I don't bother because I have the excuse that I'm doing research about existential risk. So I, I should be allowed. At least that's my excuse when the men in black shows up. But if you want to do something really sneaky, you can take steps to hide it. Although not all steps are effective. So if you're buying up a lot of ingredients to make meth in a vicinity, that's probably going to show up. Mm -hmm. This is getting harder for some things. So the attempts at stopping people from doing drug generation has also meant that a lot of amateur chemists can't get their chemicals that they previously would be buying in the chemical supply store. So if you go to YouTube, you find all sorts of wonderful instruction films on how to generate it from household ingredients. And I... I find it very relaxing to watch people make horrible chemicals out of it. But they're, of course, not making meth using it. They're just, mm -hmm. They just want to have that sulfuric acid or that uh, fuming ni nitric acid or that hydrazine for some other very ill-advised chemistry. Now, the interesting problem here is tracking bad activity works well in the physical world of chemistry. It's trickier for biology because the tools you need to make uh, the doomsday pathogen is about the same tools as you need to make uh, your uh, uh, bioluminescent uh, C. elegans worms or uh, uh, bacteria. So you might actually have a harder time discerning it. And of course, the fear for AI is that mm, doing the really dangerous AI, whether that is to, to commit big crimes or is, uh, controlling uh, drones to do attacks, might look the same. There are still interesting issues like maybe we could control the amount of compute you have access to. Training a big neural network, that is a big run on a big data center. Uh, so there have been some people arguing that, oh, no, it's bad for the environment. Look at how much energy we used up. And when you actually calculate it, uh, it turns out that mm, GPT-3, the training used about as much energy as it takes to make a 30-foot steel a railway bridge. That's mm -hmm. not nothing. But it's not like that kind of railway bridge is a major environmental concern. There, I don't know how many hundreds are getting built like that every year around the world. It's not enormous. The real problem is that mm, from the outside, it's impossible to tell whether you're training a language model or a business model or something to make some dangerous uh, military stuff. They all look the same from the outside. And inspecting the code, well, that's not even clear because the same kind of neural network might be used differently, depending on how you prompt it. Because mm -hmm. it, now it's also the training data that in itself is setting the function. It used to be that it was the design, the blueprint you had or the code that was clearly expressing your intention. But now it might part of the training data, which is, of course, also why we have this problem about various biases coming in through the data. We get a lot of accidental intentions into our systems. So so something I do after uh, a long day, I get tired of like looking at things with my eyes. So I'll listen to an audiobook versus like read something. And so you're you're like actually using your brain and like looking around at the world. And so I'm wondering, do you ever do you ever like tag switch and do something 
entirely different or, or do you have like things that you do i don't know, like you plant plants or something or like garden or you do like biohacking like something that's different to like help yeah. offset like the focus that you have on the different things you're working on yeah a, f- a few years back i had this moment of realization it was the, the curator of a materials library at imperial college who gave a lovely talk about uh, various things and she mentioned that yeah sometimes i just feel like it's a zinc day and uh, she just brought up zinc objects from the materials library and put on her desk and then i realized that everything i did was information on a good day, I might be writing something. I would be sending off email. I might be making some computer graphics. It's all information. It's all moving bits around. Sometimes we get printed out, but maybe I should do something physical. So over the next few months, I looked around for something physical to do. So I ended up both collecting beetles, uh, which mm. is kind of nice and also a fun way of enjoying nature and its craziness. And also, and this intensified during COVID, I started cooking. Uh, and it's interesting because you can still use your science and chemistry the skills in the kitchen. It just needs, uh, you need to know enough what's going on uh, to start linking it up. I used to be super frustrated trying to learn how to cook and bake by asking my mother because she knew how to do it properly, but she couldn't explain why you're supposed to do it. Mm. So I didn't know what parameters I could change, etc. And then during COVID, I was just alone at home. I could just play around. And if it was a disaster, nobody would know. Maybe the Mm -hmm. neighbors would smell it, but that's about it. Uh, So I could play around and I was reading up and I found, for example, a nice book, Cooking for Geeks, which really appealed to me uh, because it was explaining uh, cooking to a computer scientist and not in the normal way. First, it started by that mystery of how do you get spices and tastes that go well together and demonstrate how you can do cooking by actually doing statistics on what go well together in recipes online. And then formatting your kitchen, what are the tools and equipment and why do you have them? And then basically one section about, okay, and here is what happens at different temperatures, to different things in food. And now you can start putting things together. Once you have that key, and that was what worked for me, other people might find other books useful, then it's easier to start understanding. I read a lot of molecular gastronomy. I like uh, Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking, which is this enormous tome uh, going through everything. One chapter about milk, where you get into the molecular na- nature of milk and why does milk do what it does when you heat it, etc. One chapter about eggs. What is an egg? Why does it behave like this? And then it leads to interesting questions like, how do you make a decent Hollandaise sauce? Mm-hmm. And once you're going on that, eventually, of course, you also get the practical skills. I'm still not a great, a great cook in the sense of having an elegant kitchen and everything in its right place. It, it's messy. I need to clean up rubber a lot afterwards. But I know I can generate food that seems to be tasty. At least people are polite. And the most interesting thing is, this is, of course, where you both can use your intellectual skills, but also the sensory skills. You actually need to taste the food. Actually, what taste combinations are good? Well, you still need to take a taste of that sauce and try to figure out what's missing here. Is it salt? Is it uh, some acidity? And, uh, should I throw it out and try uh, something else? And that is a good way of doing a context switch. Similarly, practical things like just washing the dishes. I regard that as a kind of meditation. It's simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hands are know what they're doing. And meanwhile, I'm kind of thinking about nothing in particular. One of the big problems when you're intellectual is that there is always something to think about. And quite often you even have it assigned as a task, which is horrible. 
I need to think about the structure of that book chapter I'm supposed to be submitting next week. But I'm not going to progress that much on it if I'm thinking about it. It's probably more likely that I'm going to understand how to make an elegant way of expressive argument while walking or doing the dishes or trying to take a good photo of that darn beetle running away from me. But uh, just a just a quick question on this: Is there a dish you'd recommend? I like cooking as well. I've been getting into making bread. I make little. There's like little tiny Dutch oven I got at Target, and I make little tiny breads. It's like it's adorable, and I, I love it. But the, is there a rest? Is there something you recommend people try making or that something that you enjoy making yeah uh, i do enjoy making a dish that forces you to do several different mm. styles of things so one of my standard uh, things is uh, uh, fried salmon fillets uh, with wilted spinach and uh, mushroom sauce uh, so the, the the salmon is interesting because here you want to heat the fish so you get a nice crust that is full of tastiness but you also don't want to overheat it so it becomes dry and boring. So there is a bit of observation and uh, controlling temperature. That is an interesting separate thing. The wilted spinach is super easy. You just take a frying pan, you have some oil, some salt, and maybe a little bit of garlic in. You just put, put in the spinach leaves, you move them around a fair bit, but not too high heat. They, the cell walls break, they turn into this nice green fresh mush, and then it's super easy to do. And then, of course, the mushroom sauce, uh, that's also fun because the mushrooms behave very different from much else in the kitchen. Mm. So one thing I've done is I repeated this many times so I know how to do it fairly well. Same, same thing with my mushroom pie. That's another thing I'm doing almost every week. Uh, make a pie crust, which is very interesting because unlike bread, where you want the gluten to be extending and making it elastic, here you desperately want it to not get any gluten out. That's why you're supposed to work with cold uh, butter and cold water and kind of work very quickly. Because the, the basically the starch needs to be held together just by a bit of fat before you then uh, put it in the oven. And then you uh, fry up mushrooms to re remove a lot of water and put on a ridiculous amount of uh, lovely cheese, etc. Might not be the super healthiest, but it's very enjoyable and it's vegetarian, if not vegan. Um, now, the interesting thing is, again, doing the same dish a number of times, you start learning the parameters, you can try experimenting. So you're a small uh, bread, uh, for example. To me, that sounds really tricky because I'm very bad at bread making. I'm great with cakes. Uh, I've been doing that since I was a kid, but uh, bread I find still a mystery. <laughs> is there an aspect about bread making that is difficult? Kneading. Uh, I think um. that is what I'm bad at. Uh, so mixing stuff together, I'm totally fine with that. Actually manipulating it so you get the right fibrous structure, this is the key thing. Uh, I know all the theory stuff, but I don't have that practical skill. And then you get this interesting feedback effect. Since I don't really think I'm good at bread, I'm rarely doing it, so I'm mm. not getting those skills. What I probably ought to be doing is just buying an enormous amount of flour and then spending a weekend just making crappy bread until I know how to do it properly. Mm. That's perhaps unlikely for me to actually do, but uh, the, there is this interesting specialization that happens when you're motivated on some things to get good at it. So when I was a kid, uh, my brother and me shared the same birthday. So we were, of course, arguing with our parents that we wanted two separate birthday cakes, as you would as brothers. And uh, our parents said, yeah, uh, you have to bake them yourself if uh, you want that. I called the bluff and said, I'm willing to do it. 
they called my bluff and handed over a cookbook. And then mm -hmm. I started making the birthday cakes uh, in my family. And that's how I actually got started in the kitchen. But birthday cakes are usually much easier. That's not the most demanding form of cooking. Yeah, the, I was going to suggest that you could just make like a tub of bread and then like the loaf and then have six different uh, sizes of them and then just increment by like one more minute on each of the kneading mm -hmm. and then see how it came out. And then you develop the muscle memory at the same time, which would be less than a weekend. You'd probably do it in the afternoon. But yeah, the, the kneading is like it is a bit of an art. But uh, that's what that's how I did. It. I just I made like six to eight different little loaves, and then I just kneaded them all at different intervals. And then when ah. I and then I and then I bit them all. I had a sample of them, and I also like uh uh gave them to a couple people as well as like a blind like here the I, I I find that sometimes if you can if you have if you give people six different versions of something to taste, like they might not be able to tell the difference. So I always make it between two different things. I limit it down to the two extremes mm -hmm. or like two different profiles I'm trying to taste. Or test apart like if i ask you what's the difference between one is like one through six like you it's some sometimes it's very difficult for people but if it's like what's what's the difference between one and three it's like it's really easy for them so that that might be like a, a fun thing but the... and this is a brilliant way of actually experimenting properly incidentally that comparison observation is super valuable uh, that mm. that's well worth for everybody to remember uh, because once you start doing comparisons instead of trying to make some general judgment everything turns better yeah, the um, yeah, it makes it makes it easier to make decisions too. Like sometimes it's, sometimes my wife does. Like, well, like, hey, what do you want for dinner? And it's like, it's like, oh, do you want this? Like, no, no, no. It's like, well, do you want this or this? And it's like, well, I like the other one better. <laughs> like, makes things easier. But, um, so I don't know if you watched the TV show Westworld, but in Westworld they talked about how when they were recreating human consciousness, that at first they thought it was like this big complex thing, but it actually was code that could fit in like a really small book like it's not that complicated and i've also heard that some people say that uh when there's like true generalized ai like it'll be like a really small it won't be like this complex thing the actual code for that component of it that allows the rest to form will be really small and then i'm thinking in conjunction with elon musk who says when he builds something he deletes something to, mm -hmm. does it still work to solve the functionality so he has like this minimalism approach and so um i'm wondering how that all rectifies because this goes to a fan uh, question that I'm trying to tie in here. I think I might be like hamfisting a little bit, but they're they're asking about how do you emulate a whole brain? And mm -hmm. I, I wonder, is it the Westworld simplicity? Is it how much can you delete before you get like the functionality? Is that like the way? Um, in conjunction with annual ad, just is asking about uh, opportunities uh, in the field of whole brain em emulation, mm -hmm. you know, communication, brain synthesis, uh, signal processing, that type of thing. So that I'm like, yeah. I had a question, but I'm also trying to fit in a fan question yeah. at the same time. Uh, well, I, I think there is probably an interesting link here because that earlier, the idea about comparison. That is in some sense a compression question. Uh, do I like this better than that? Well, there is one bit of information in the answer and I half down the search space. Now, a lot of science uh, and even understanding the world is about finding a compressed representation of what's going on. So this mm -hmm. again ties into that looking at this uh, sky and looking at the world and having good explanations. Now, a good explanation is not necessarily uh, just a tale. It's it's like a program. It's a program that can generate predictions about uh, what's going on. So if I have a really good explanation for the universe, that is a short program that generates pretty good predictions what happens if I do different things. And then I can test it by uh, making a guess, let, running it, and then comparing that to reality. Now, the problem is, what about the brain? How compressible is the brain? That's really the question here. 
And there are these general theorems uh, about the compressibility of software saying that actually it's kind of in some sense impossible to know for certain except by comp computing all possibilities. In practice, we quite often find this by understanding subsets. So when you think about the brain, we understand neurons decently well. We know how they send their signals. At this point, somebody will bring up that, wait a minute, what about, and there's the latest paper showing some weird things going on. And there is this tendency in neuroscience that uh, people will say, oh, the brain is the most complex thing in the universe and we don't understand anything of it, which on one hand is very humble. And it's also kind of a humble brag that, oh, I'm studying this super awesome thing. But it also kind of leads out to the fact that we know a fair bit about it. We know about its electrical properties, its chemistry. We can actually make brains do a surprising, shocking amount of stuff. It's just that there's also a lot of stuff we know we don't know. And sometimes it's very relevant things. And sometimes it's stuff that's just unknown unknowns. So when you think about brain emulation, the typical concept many people have is you take a brain, you scan it using some interesting technology. We can, we can just hand wave that for the moment. And then you get a one-to-one -one representation, which is probably going to be this big computational neuroscience simulation. You simulate little compartments inside the neurons that are roughly the same electrical potential and chemical mixture. And we have equations since the 1940s, the Hodgkin-Huxley equations. They are still valid. It's just that we need to update them with a lot of extra terms for all the weird stuff going on in biology. And then you just run it. Great, easy peasy. Okay, you need an environment simulation, a body simulation, that's also kind of a mess, but this sounds easy. But now you're not having a very compressed representation. You're trying to make this one-to-one -one model because that is probably the easiest thing to do based on a scan. If I take a scan of a piece of brain tissue, I can see the neurons, the connections, and hopefully we can figure out a way of getting the chemical and electrical properties too. That's the big, big question mark on how to actually do because we can get the connectome these days more and more for bigger and bigger organisms. But that's not necessarily telling us because that's a dry brain. We want mm -hmm. to actually compare it to a live brain and that's much trickier. But once you have that low level model, that doesn't tell you anything about the high level stuff, including things like consciousness or intelligence or memory or attention. Uh, you don't even get to see where love is in the brain. You just have this big simulation. If it works really well, of course, that emulated person will now say things uh, about uh, whether he is conscious and maybe write a love poem, etc. Great, we know that it works in that case. But how much could you cut it down? And many people in computational neuroscience believe that neurons are probably a too low-level representation. So my hmm. advisor, Professor Anders Lansner, had this view that it's probably the cortical microcolumns, which is a few hundred to a few thousand neurons. They are actually the computational units. They're working together as a little microprocessor, and they're all connected to each other. But the individual neurons are doing fairly small, uh, small tasks. And the, the, what you could replace them all with these more higher order units. That's kind of a nice idea. We don't know whether this is true, but we could test it if we had the brain emulation. On the other hand, if I start out with this idea and try to map it onto a brain, I don't I will not know how to do it. So the likely way we get brain emulation is we start with a very complete, very messy representation, and then to see how much we can refine it. And hopefully this can be refined when we're actually having actual input from real animals. And that is, of course, getting over to the question, so what do we need to do? 
uh, where is the career opportunities? And right now, the scanning side seems to have a lot of cool possibilities. Expansion microscopy means that we can do awesome things by expanding a tissue to be big enough to see in a microscope. But the array, array tomography uh, it seems to be able to find a lot of the different chemical uh, traces. And of course, the people with uh, electron microscopes are figuring out ways of doing slicing and scanning on larger scales. So cool stuff is happening there. The computer is also kind of there. You have people working on uh, better microchips, or better interconnect. The translation part is the annoying thing. If I have a, a slice of a brain and a good scan, can I turn that into something that runs? And nobody has done this yet. I think that is one big challenge. And we probably need to invent a bit of science here uh, because it's one thing to base it on what we already know about the brain. We know that there are unknown unknowns, and some of them are kind of very suspected unknowns. Temperature, for example, it affects various processes in a lot of the ways. So we probably need a temperature model. That's complicating things in an annoying and boring way, but it's probably not hard. Probably. Mm -hmm. We don't know that. We need to test this. And then you need to be able to run an experiment in your computational model and go out in the real world and see, did it predict the right thing? And if it didn't, you need to find the delta and use that to figure out what you missed. This is where we probably need to do the most methodological innovation. This is where the genius insights might be needed. Or it might just be a lot of hard work and elbow grease where you have a lot of people in the lab testing a lot of possibilities or building up automated AI-supported system to do scans, simulations, testing, comparisons. So I think there is a lot of work, both for people working on the AI-supported research, for developing the ways of interpreting scan data, the practicalities of scanning tissue, and also maybe modifying tissue. Brain implants are interesting because they allow you uh, to send a signal and see what the response is. You can, uh, if you can do that, and then compared to what the response is in your simulation, you learn quite a lot more than just being observational. So we want to close the loop here, and that's going to require a lot of development. The cool part is some of this is useful even in standard neuroscience. The basic goal of brain emulation is kind of outside what normal neuroscience is about, because it doesn't give you an understanding of what the brain is. It will not tell you what intelligence is. You just end up with an intelligent system that you now need to do research on. But it would produce a lot of intermediate ways of investigating neural systems, some of which are good for science, some which might be just medically useful. After all, just imagine if we could find a good way of seeing where the pain is coming from in a tissue. Just pour on some uh, nanoparticle reagent and it changes colors when it links to C fibers. And then it starts shimmering when there is a signals in the C fibers and we know this is where the pain is. Whoa, that would be rather valuable for a lot of people. So there is a lot of cool stuff in this neurotech area that I think one can get, get into. And it might be on the material science, making those nanoparticles. It might be on the more biological side, like how do I interface with the immune system? It might be on the device side, whether that is an implant or a robot or an electron microscope. It might be on the software side, how do I interpret these things? Or it might be kind of a research planning or a systems engineering side. How do I set up this feedback loop and how do I get funding for it? Yeah, and I know we're going long, so I just, uh, quick, quick two questions. Um, there's a person who is roughly asking, how can non-technical people be a part of these types of uh, projects to be, help out? Um, they have a, a longer question, but I feel like, are, 
using just uh, emulation or anything that we previously talked about, how would a non-technical person come in and help out? Mm. I think that's an interesting question. So it used to be that uh, science uh, was seen as unproblematic and it's always good and we should all respect the scientists because they have the truth. And we have kind of rightly challenged that in the modern world, but we also ended up in this weird situation where, okay, uh, people say trust the science. Wait a minute, science is about testing and not try mm -hmm. taking your word for it. Uh, that's even uh, the motto of the Royal Society in London, uh, nullius in verba. Don't take our word for it. You actually need to check uh, the things. So we have ended up with this weird situation where a very good uh, idea about democratizing things and uh, not accepting authorities just because we say we're authority has also turned a little bit into an anti-science attitude. The, the reasonable anti-elitist attitude has also turned into this distrust of expertise and assuming that just because I can do some research on YouTube, I know just as much as the expert. And we have a bigger malaise in our culture. And that is, of course, many people don't uh, think that we're making progress. It's just one darn thing after another. And thinking about the future is quite often rather pessimistic. Now, non-technical people have an important role here because we're all kind of embedded in the zeitgeist, this idea about what the world is and where it's going. And the stories we tell each other about, do we hope for the future? Are we fearing for the future? What should we be doing in the future? And generally, I think we need to actually work rather hard on this project of actually reigniting the idea that, yeah, we can actually build stuff. We can understand stuff. We can actually make the world better on a vast scale. That doesn't mean that we should always trust the people saying that we can do it. Actually, we should be rather good at scrutinizing their agendas and their plans and pointing out that quite a lot of emperors have very little clothing on and quite a lot of projects might be leaving out important stakeholders, etc. But it means that we're actually jointly trying to work together. And this is where I think Scientists, uh, there is this idea that science needs to do more science communication. We all need uh, to reach out and uh, talk to the stakeholders. But in its simplest form, this is, of course, somebody stepping down from the ivory tower and telling the world about some cool stuff and you're supposed to be grateful for it. That doesn't work. The second step was, oh, yeah, people don't know this stuff. But once they know about how genetic engineering or AI works, they're all going to make up their minds in a useful way. Turns out that the deficient model of science communication is also a disaster because usually people just get more polarized. They have an opinion already. And uh, now it's just get reinforced because you have a pieces of evidence in favor of it. Uh, now, the thing that actually works better is when people get involved. And I do think that we need to work out ways of getting involved. And I don't know necessarily the best ways of doing that. Some of it is, of course, just talking to people. People in the ivory tower should be trying to talk uh, more uh, to people outside. But the same goes in the opposite direction, uh, too. Uh, so basically what happens is that um, uh, you, you need uh, to have this interaction going both ways. Uh, I'm delighted by getting email from uh, a boy in, uh, somewhere in Greece who just somehow found my email address and started asking me weird questions about astronomy. Uh, yep. Uh, maybe I should be doing other stuff, but I give that fairly high priority because I think it's rather cool to just talk to somebody who's just interested in general. And I think what the non-scientists can do here is actually helping us have this general discussion, both talking to the scientists, but also talking to other people and helping build a culture of progress. 
including defining what the heck progress actually means to us. Because right now, you find very few positive visions. So even if you have a fairly primary positive vision, it actually gets a lot of impact. Uh, th this is partially why some uh, religious uh, fundamentalist groups uh, are getting traction, simply because they have a kind of positive vision. It's super reactionary and limited, but at least they think we can be going there. Meanwhile, a lot of liberal society doesn't dare to propose a vision. Why? Well, the, that uh, proposed uh, vision might be against what somebody likes. So we're only going to talk about what we're against. And there is a long list of things that all reasonable people are against. So we're all trying to do risk minimization and uh, be inclusive. But that's not a positive vision. You need to have something to aim for. Uh, the environmentalist movement, to some extent, has been trapped by their success. We know what we're against, but constructing a green society that actually people would like to be in is very different from a lot of the standard wishes, which is a small-scale society that doesn't fit that many people. And somehow a lot of people need to disappear from the equation to get that nice little small-scale society. Scaling it up so you can have a solar punk society that has uh, cities with 10 million people is outside the normal discourse, but probably should be done. And I think that from my own transhumanist perspective, I would like to have people think about what would you actually want to enhance? Most of the talk about enhancement, either cool, far mode, cyborg stuff, or it's work. But most of the things we actually care about happen in our own daily life. There are probably aspects of our being that we might want to enhance, and they're very different from what makes us work better. Okay, mm -hmm. sorry, getting into a rant here, uh, but at least that managed to cover quite a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it. Uh, there's a lot there for that. Hopefully, if it's given that person a direction. I know we've gone late, so I'll I'll, I'll can my last question and say uh, thank you, Andrews, for being on the show today, sharing your knowledge, sharing your excitement for the things you're working on, and uh, everyone listening. Baking uh, tips and cooking tips and uh, <laughs> all sorts of uh, things we can work on. Yeah, but uh, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, good luck, and let's make the future bright.